Good morning. Please open your Bible to Luke chapter 7. And I'm going to uh, read verses 1 through 17. And before I do that, I want to uh, give you a warning um, that Alex Montoya gives when he preached in Spanish. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard Alex Montoya, but uh, he does speak Spanish, but his his language, his first language is English. So when he speaks Spanish, he 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 struggles to to preach, and he gives a warning, and he says, "If you hear something you don't understand, it's because I probably made that word up." <laughs> so I'm going to do my best preaching in English my second language, and if you hear something weird, it's probably because it doesn't exist, and I made it up. <clears throat> so, Luke chapter 7, verse 1 through 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, I am a man, set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him, and he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the beer, and the beer stood still, and he said, John man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, <clears throat> A great prophet has arrived among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. 
I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, help me this morning. Use me this morning. May you, Holy Spirit, use this hour for your glory. Amen. The title of the sermon is, What Do a Widow and a Centurion Have in Common? These two events that I just read from Luke chapter 7, they, they look almost out of place. Our Lord just finished preaching and teaching the Beatitudes. And after these two events, we have the disciples of John asking if he is the Messiah. And when you read uh, the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, these two events, these two stories that I just read, they look almost out of place. Like, why are they there? And then the two stories are almost so different to each other. And the characters in each event, they're very different from each other. And you wonder, what was the purpose? What's the purpose of these two events? Today, uh, I want to show you was the importance of these two events and why Luke considered very important to have them in this order and together as they are. First, if we look at chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After he has finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Here we have Christ finishing preaching the Beatitudes, and now he goes to a different location and he enters Capernaum. What do we know about Capernaum? What do we uh, know about this town? Well, the meaning of the word Capernaum means village of the comfort. This, uh, this uh, Capernaum is located by the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. It's north of Jerusalem. It, it was probably uh, 1,500 uh, on population, not really big, but it was more of a small town. And the name Capernaum, like I said, means village of, of comfort. So you can imagine it was a place of relax and easy, easy living. We also know about this town, Capernaum, because uh, we find it in the Bible several times. Several miracles are done in this town. And our Lord goes to this town, and when he enters this town, verse 2 says, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death. A centurion and a servant. The centurion was a Roman soldier or a Roman official who, who, who had authority over at least a hundred men. There comes the word centurion from a uh, hundred men. And a centurion would be a, a soldier, a military figure with authority and power. What, what we have in this uh, event, in this narrative of the centurion, uh, looking to help his servant, we have something very unusual, not very ordinary. Uh, a centurion was a person of power, person of authority, and 
it was not common for a centurion to to care that much for one servant, for one slave. It was not common either for a centurion to have a good relationship with the elders, the Jews, the elders of the Jews. See what we read and what we find in this in this story. There's so many unusual and not ordinary uh, connections and relations between different groups. First, we have the centurion who is a man of power, who cares for his servant. Then we have the elders, uh, the Jews, the elders who care for the Roman soldier. Uh, then we have uh, we have Christ who. When they, when he is asked for, for help, he goes without asking anything, and he goes willingly. Usually, he would, he would not go immediately. But we had different groups here that usually they would not, uh, they would not have a good relationship. See, the Jewish, the elders, the uh, elders of the Jewish, the reason they didn't like Christ is because they're, they're, they were waiting. For a Messiah that could be a military general who could overthrow Rome. So when when we read that the elders of the Jews are giving a good word for the Roman centurion, that's very unusual. That's not normal. When we see that the centurion cares a lot for his servant, that's not normal. They would not care for their servants. And when we see that the centurion is described as a humble man, and the centurion also, the, uh, the elders of the Jews says, he loves our nation. That's not normal. For a Roman, for a Roman centurion to love the nation of uh, Israel, that was not normal. For a man of power, with power and wealth, to, to be humble, that was not normal. A man of his authority with all the power and wealth that he had, it was not normal that he was using his power and wealth to help the Jews build a synagogue. So we see that there, there are a lot of uh, events and a lot of, a lot of different groups interacting with each other that it's not normal for them to have that type of, of relation, of connection. See, if you were to travel today and get on an airplane and go to a different country, a different nation with a different language, and you arrive there and you try to get around that place and two or three hours later you see someone there and it sounds like he's speaking your language. And you get close and you find out that that person is from the same city that you are from, from Midland. And you, you get excited. You're like, oh, I'm not alone. You get connected to that person. You start talking to that person. And then you say, oh, yeah, I went to the same high school. Oh, wow. Oh, we had the same teacher. Oh, wow. You get it. The more connections you have to that person, the more matches you have, the more things uh, that you uh, have together, the more, the more excitement you get because you're alone over there in a different country, different nation. And that person becomes very special to you because now you have a lot of things in common. But on these events and this story, we have 
people with different types of groups that usually they don't connect, usually they don't, they don't have any uh, love for each other. But we see here that even the uh, elders of the Jews, even them say, he's worthy. He's worthy for you to do this. That was really, really, really not normal. They would never say that for a Roman centurion. We find out that the reason they say he's worthy is because he built the synagogue. So, and also because he loves our nation. That's why the elders of the Jews present the Roman centurion as a worthy person. Someone worthy to, to receive this, uh, this help from Christ. We also learn that the centurion, even though he is uh, presented as worthy by the uh, elders of the Jews, even though he's presented as someone who uh, loves the nation of Israel, when our Lord is getting close to his house to, to perform the miracle, he sends other friends, he sends other people, and tells them and gives a message to Christ and says, Don't come any more near because I'm not worthy of you coming under my roof. So this is, again, not normal for someone with this much authority and this much uh, power under him to be this humble and say, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. And, and now we also, when he sends that message, we learn what type of theology this centurion has because he says all you have to do just say the word and it will be done so his theology the type of theology that he has is he understands that Christ is able he understands that Christ is more powerful than himself he understands that Christ even though he looks like just a, a, a man but he's just not just not a man, but he is a man of power and authority. And he understands that, and he sends that message and says that he understands because he also has power, but he knows that Christ has greater power. All he has to say, and it will be done. Now, to understand how this is very, very uh, unusual, we can look at who were these elders of the Jews. We, we know that to be an elder of the Jews, you had to either be a scribe, a Pharisee, or a Sadducee. The scribes were the masters, the, the teachers, the, the officials, uh, uh, scribe men, the wise men, the Pharisees. They were considered the separate ones. The Sadducees were considered the righteousness. So these are men that are put on a high, high level of righteousness. But these men are saying the centurion is worthy. He, he deserves for you to do this miracle for him. 
that 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 uh, detail that uh, the centurion sent these uh, elders of the Jews and this message not to come to his uh, to his house on the parallel. Uh, uh, in the Gospel of uh, Matthew, chapter A, we we don't find those details, and probably the reason is because Luke is writing to Gentiles, and Matthew is writing to uh, Jews. So that that small detail of elders of the Jews recommending a centurion probably was not something to be proud of for the Jews. But we have this centurion who is described as worthy, but he himself says, I'm not worthy. Today, this morning, each of you here in front of me, you are looking very clean. You look very nice. You probably have even a very good reputation. Probably I can call your employers and ask about you. And probably they will say great things about yourself. Uh, probably they will say, you know, great things, how good of a worker and ethics you have. Probably the people around you gives, gives and say good things about you and say, oh, you got it going. You're, you know, I wish my family was like yours. I wish my marriage was like yours. Maybe you receive all this good, you know, reputation around you. Maybe you're sitting here and you fit uh, most of the centurion. Maybe you, you're be- very well off, you're wealthy. Maybe you have, uh, you know, some authority over other people. Probably you are very connecting, like I mentioned earlier, looking for those connections. Okay, I connect there. I'm similar here, there. But this centurion, he was not accepting this description about himself. He said, I'm not worthy. So even if you're here and you're all, you, you show and you present yourself as someone, you know, respectful, probably inside of you, you're saying, oh, Samuel, you really don't know me. Oh, you really don't know my sense. You probably, probably everybody else see me, sees everything is good. Probably everybody else look at me and my family, and everybody thinks I got it going. But probably inside of you, you're just like this centurion saying, ooh, not really. I'm not that worthy. Not really. I am a sinner too. And not really. I'm not worthy. You probably, you find that connection with the centurion. Now, we can speculate and try to uh, find what was the centurion saying. Why did he not consider himself worthy? I remember living in Florida, uh, close to a Navy uh, uh, base, a military base, in a church, there were two military families. And these two families 
one of the guys, he would talk, you know, when we have Bible studies, he would uh, give his opinion and have conversations. The other family, the other guy, he would not say nothing. You would not be able to get him to say even hi. You greet him, hello, he'll be like, and that bothered me a lot. I want him to talk, but he didn't. He didn't. He didn't talk. And one day I asked the other, the other guy, the one that he would, you know, have a conversation. I said, "Why does he doesn't talk? Is he like that in the base too, or he just here?" <laughs> and he said, "Oh no, he cannot talk." I'm like, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, you know the movies and that make you know movies about guys going overseas and taking care of business. That's." That's him. <laughs> and he said not even his wife can know what, what he do. And he cannot talk. And I say, oh, wow. See, over here, the centurion, he's a military man. And if you want to be a centurion, you, the options were you, you are either a hero, which means you were one of the first ones entering uh, the gates of battle enemy, or you were appointed by the emperor. To be a centurion, you had to be appointed by the senate. The centurion was a military man, active in battle, who was not just, you know, talk, but real action. And what I learned when I live in Florida, near that military base, is that military families are ones of the most tough uh, situations where they had to do a lot of things that we don't even know about. And I don't want to speculate too much on the centurion, what were his sense, but he was looked as a hero, but he knew him. He knew what he has done. He knew what, what he has done wrong, and he confessed, I'm not worthy. See, you can connect to the uh, centurion and say, I have a lot of similar, you know, aspects with him. Um, I can relate to him. But you should also relate with him when it comes to worthiness. Even if, if your family, yourself, even if you're doing well, brother, in all aspects, money, spiritual, hell, even if everything is, in Spanish we say, color de rosa, even if everything is pink, everything is, you know, beautiful, and nothing is happening in your life, please learn that you're not worthy of that. You're not. And this centurion recognized that, and even our Lord Christ prays him and says, I have not find such faith, not even in Israel. See, the healing of the servant causes that the crowd uh, gets, gets bigger. There was a crowd following Christ. Then... Christ performs this uh, healing, and then the crowd gets bigger, and now the crowd goes to a different location. So on Luke chapter 7, verse 11, 
says soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples in a great crowd went with him. See, on chapter 7, verse 9, the crowd is just described as a crowd. A crowd is a lot of people. But in verse 11, it's described as a great crowd. So there's more people going now following Christ after the healing. The reason I choose to do these two events together and not one at a time is because verse 11 begins with soon afterward. They're connecting both events to each other. He just healed the servant and now goes to a different town. The, the crowd gets greater and they follow him. So what's going to happen next is very important for what happened earlier. And it's very interesting that we get the names of the town, like Capernaum, and now we have the, the, the other town named Nain. That's very important. Because Nain is a town very close to another town that is described in the Old Testament. And in that town, if you want to go to First King chapter 17, we have a very famous uh, miracle. We have the prophet Elijah, who uh, God was using to stop the rain. First King chapter 11, verse 8. God used prophet Elijah to stop the rain. And then after there's no more rain, well, there's no more food. If there's no more food, there's a lot of trouble. And God tells Elijah, okay, now I'm going to send you to a widow, and she will feed you. Elijah finds the widow, and the widow pretty much is cooking her last meal and says, this is all I have. God, God knows that I'm cooking this for my child and me, and after we eat this, then we die. Elijah says, trust the Lord, he's going to provide. Well, there's a miracle there. Uh, they, the flour and the oil keeps, keeps a re refueling, and <coughs> keeps refueling, and, and, I, uh, and if you remember this, this uh, story on the Old Testament, the son of the widow dies. And when he dies, Elijah goes to the Lord and says, Oh, Lord, I came to this house. Her son died. Please help. Elijah raised this boy from the dead, bring it to her mom and say, Here, here's your son. He's not dead anymore. So that story is there. And if we back to Luke chapter 7, verse 11, Christ goes to a, another town called Nain. Same town that Elijah was with a widow, with a son that died and was raised. Now this is our Lord entering this town. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was carried out. He hasn't entered the town yet. And what do we found? A man who died is being carried out. The only son of his mother 
She was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. I want you to imagine this, put it in your mind. Christ is coming from Capernaum. He already have a crowd, but the crowd is bigger now because it's a great crowd. They're coming. Where are they going? To Nain. From Nain, there's a considerable crowd coming. And this crowd is coming with what? With a dead man. And with a widow. A widow means her husband died. When? We don't know, but she's a widow. And this is her only son. So she has no husband, no son. And there's a considerable crowd coming. And these two crowds are meeting together. They meet together. Obviously, the crowd with the dead men, they're not joyful. They're not happy. They're, they're sorrow for a death of a young man. And probably also thinking about the widow, poor lady. So this considerable crowd is coming out of, out of the, the gate. And then there's Christ with a great crowd. And they collide each other. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. What can you say to a mother who lost her son? There's no words. There's nothing you can say. But here in verse 13, our Lord says something to her. And when the Lord, Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Do not weep. If you go to a funeral, please don't say these words to, to the uh, you know, people who lost their loved ones. Do not say that. Now, our Lord did say that. Do not weep. Why? Well, we're going to find out why. Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the beer, and the beer stood still, and he said, Young men, I say to you, arise. Okay, so unless you're going to raise the dead, do not say do not weep. Our Lord said do not weep because he was going to raise this young man. We have here the widow who lost her only son, and she's weeping. How we know she's weeping? Well, the Lord says do not weep. Plus, she just lost her son. Of course she's weeping. Let me ask you something. Did she call for Christ? Did she send friends or someone to find him? Did, did the Lord say, do you believe? No. Let me ask you this. Did she have any faith? That's very important because there's a lot of uh, false false teachers and false doctrines where they tell you if you have enough faith you you need to believe and you receive your miracle if you have enough faith uh, 
Christ will do it for you. God will do it for you. Or they will sell you like a formula. Buy this book, come to this conference, and we'll have the right formula. We're going to teach you how to overcome all your po- you know, problems or, or you know, hell, whatever problems you have. Come and we're going to teach you that secret formula that you haven't found. Did she use any formula? Did she ask? Did she have faith? Did she, is she like, pre, is she asking Christ for a miracle? Raise my son? She's totally broken. She, she, she doesn't even probably know, or she has no clue what's going on. She don't care the two crowds. She don't care what's happening around her. Her son died. And then there come this man and says, do not weep. She has no faith yet. She has not asked for him. She has no hope. And more than that, she has no future. She's done. She's a widow. On first king, when Elijah comes to this widow, she's like, I'm cooking my last meal and then I'm dying. Because a widow without a son is condemned to die. But the Lord says, do not weep. And then he goes and touch the beer. I'm not, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but uh, that's where they will put the uh, dead body and they will hold that and carry him. Well, Christ as a Jew, he should not touch that because that will make him uh, uh, uncontaminated. He could not touch the dead. And why did he did that? And why did he care? Why does he wants to help this widow? Luke says, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Why did she receive her miracle? You know, you probably heard that. Come receive your miracle. Why did she receive her miracle? What was the formula? How much, what was the level of faith? What was the secret, you know, word? Did she build a synagogue? The reason is because Christ had compassion on her. See, before I, I told you, maybe you have connections with the centurion. Maybe you have a lot of connections that you can be similar to him. Maybe you're well off. Maybe you have power. Maybe you, your life is going well. Maybe you have a good reputation. But now we have the opposite here. Someone who's broken. Someone who has nothing. Someone who has no hope. Someone who's... Uh, you know, her future is done. Someone who, who doesn't even expect in Christ. Someone who has zero. 
Maybe you identify with this widow today. Maybe you're like, done. Maybe you, you just, that's it. Maybe you just don't, don't find any more purpose of life. Maybe that's where you are. And the title of the sermon is, What do a widow and a centurion have in common? What do these two have in common? And the answer is Christ. Christ is, is what they have in common. Christ came to them. Even when the centurion sent for Christ, even, even though it seems like he's seeking Christ, but Christ also had compassion for the centurion, as much compassion he had for the widow. So here today, this morning, I really don't know you. I really don't know your mind. I don't know your, your uh, you know, what's happening around you. I do not have a camera following you 24 hours. I really don't know you. And I don't know where you have more connections, if you have more connections with the centurion or the widow. I don't know where you stand. I don't know what's in your mind. But this I know. What makes the difference is Christ. See, brothers and sisters, visitors, the church is a midst of everything. This small church, we're still a small church, is a midst of everything. Maybe if I start talking to you, we're not going to find too many comments. No, we're not going to find too many things that, you know, we can uh, uh, match and say, oh, yeah, me too. Maybe we're going to have a few. Maybe we have none. But this is what we have in common. One day, Christ looked at you and he had compassion on you. One day, Christ looked at me and he had compassion on me. And that, brothers and sisters, is bigger than any other difference. That is bigger than anything else can divide us. And we're going to have different divisions between us, different, you know, backgrounds and different, you know, my, my lunch is going to look different than yours, for sure. We, we're going to be different. But let me tell you, what unites us as Christians is greater than a you know plate of lunch, or is greater than you know. Th there's so many things that the culture today wants to put you in a box. You're in this group, oh, and you must be against this group, and you're in this division, you must be against these people. But here we get together and. The same way Christ had compassion for the centurion, the same way he had compassion for the widow. Verse 15, And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. See, right here, there are questions that I ask myself. What did he, the dead man say? 
We want to know, like, okay, he just came from the dead. Tell me, what, what, what is he saying? But we don't know what he's saying. And one of the teachers uh, I had for theology, he said, if it's not in the Bible, it's because you don't need it. Because I always ask, like, why, the, you know, why this, why that? You don't need it. And we see that too, right? Like, I had this dream, I was dead, or I came from the dead, or, you know. Right here, he began to speak. He had something to say, but look, that doesn't share with us. We don't need it. But we, we need the nets, and it says, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Okay, we're interested in what the dead man said, but now Luke says, oh, and he gave it to his mother. Okay. But if you remember, first king, Elijah, and the widow, when the son of the widow died back in first king, if you go to uh, first king, chapter 17, verse 23, And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and deliver him to his mother. Luke considered very important to write that Jesus gave him to his mother. And then we have in First King the description of Elijah bringing this dead child to the widow and saying, "Here's your son." We have a repetition of events. And then when you look at Luke chapter 4, and you see what happens on chapter 4, where Christ reads the prophet Isaiah, gives the, uh, the scripture back, the, the, the rolls back, and, and then he says, there were, there, were two, there were two miracles that God did. He, he healed uh, uh, the leper, Naam, and he he raised the widow, the son's widow, from the dead. So in Luke chapter 4, we see that same story coming again. The widow, Elijah, and the son raising from the dead. And what happened on chapter 4 on Luke, when Christ remembered them and told them, God sent this, did these miracles to this military guy and this widow. In Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 27 says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naam the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose and drove him out of the town and brought him to the broad of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. So on Luke chapter 4, Christ only reminds them about two events that happened under history where God healed this Syrian military guy, and he healed, uh, and he raised the uh, the son of the widow, 
And what do they want to do? Just, he just reminds them that. That he healed them. And they get so angry. Why do they get so angry? Because those miracles were not performed on the Israelites, but on the Gentiles, their enemies. So they get so angry to the point to what? They want to throw him off the cliff. They want to kill him. Just reminding them and mentioning that gets them so angry. Now let's go back to Luke chapter 7. What do we have in Luke chapter 7? Another military guy. Another healing. And then we have another widow. Then we have another another son being raised from the dead. What's the connection be, between these two? The connection is verse 16. Fear sees them all. Who's the all? Remember the two crowds? Now it's both crowds. And both were considerable big crowds. Now fear sees them all. And they glorify God saying, A great prophet has arise among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So when this event happened, what was their reaction? They praise. They praise and glorify God. What was the reaction on Luke chapter 4? They want to kill him just by mentioning those miracles. Here in chapter 7, he not just mentioned miracles, but he repeat miracles similar to the ones they almost killed him for to mention. But now he do the miracles, and instead of wanting to kill him, they praise God and say, a great prophet has arisen among us. And pay attention to, the, to this. And God has visited his people. Who is God's people? To the mind of the Jews, only the sons of Abraham. Only the Jews. But now we have two big crowds. Who are in those crowds? Not just the Jewish. There's all kind of people in that crowd. All different type of people. And he says, God has visited. They say God has visited his people. And they all say, there's a great prophet. Great prophet prophet among us. Now, if you remember, I told you these two events seems like they're out of order. What happens after the study, this event of the widow? The disciples of John come. John the Baptist say, are you the Messiah? Is it you or we look for somebody else? I'm going to read 1st King, 1st King, chapter 17, verse 24. After the widow received his son, he said this to Elijah. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is true. So what's the answer to the disciples of John the Baptist. Their question is, is Christ the Messiah? Is, is, are you the Messiah? He just 
by these two events before that question, Christ is answering before they even arrive. You see the beauty of the uh, of how each event and how Luke wrote. And Luke is writing to Gentiles. He's saying, look, we've been blessed since the beginning. God has been our God since the beginning. We are his people too. And now the disciples of John the Baptist, when they arrive in reality, they should not even ask the question. Because the widow back in First uh, King chapter 17 already gave the answer. And the answer is the Lord. You are a man of God. And the word of the Lord is in your mouth. And it's true. So the answer to the disciples of John is, yes, he is the Messiah. Why? Because all the events that are happening and all that he's doing and he has done. So what do a widow and a centurion have in common? Really? If it wasn't for Christ, nothing. What do you and me and us here have in common? Probably I would never meet you if it wasn't for Christ. Probably would not, you know, do the same things. Probably would not have the same uh, places, you know, would have not much in common. But today, because Christ one day had compassion on you and on me, I call you brother and sister. See, people is going to maybe make fun of you and me and say, oh, you know, you, you, and, and Spanish is funny because they nickname you like that. They, they call you like, oh, eres hermanito. You are a brother. Like they, they, they bully you that way. They call you Alleluia. <laughs> so they, they, you know, we'll, we'll have nicknames and they'll have, you know, they'll call us different things. And, uh, I remember when I started coming to Colonia, it's like, uh, now, thanks to God, there's many other uh, Spanish-speaking in church. But there was a time that we were the only Spanish-speaking in the church. And people would say, why you go there? <laughs> I said, well, they preach Christ. Yeah, but they don't speak Spanish. I'm like, but they preach Christ. <laughs> and But, you know, they don't, they don't have good food. I'm like, I, I almost leave. I, they almost got me there, but I said... <laughs> I said, they preach Christ. They preach Christ. So, brothers and sisters, please remember that we're going to be facing different, you know, groups. And something that I surprised me a lot is that the centurion... Is the enemies of the elders of the Jews, and they hate him, but they're giving a good word for him. So I would challenge you, brothers and sisters, to, to be one man or woman that even your enemies, even the ones that you're not matching and the opposite of you, I would challenge you that they, are, are they, would they promote you? Would they say a good word about you? See, right now there's so much fight for everything. There's fight for, you know, 
they, what they call that, like crystal, crystal uh, generation. That you know, everything is is uh, is a big issue. Everybody gets insulted for everything, right? But brothers and sisters, let's let's be different on a way that even when we don't have nothing in common, our greatest, our greatest. Uh, our, our greatest uh, common is Christ. What unites us is Christ. And, and that's the reason I love being here. That's the reason I love enjoying fellowship with you guys. That's the reason uh, this church is, is more valuable than you ever think. Uh, Midland is beautiful because of Colonial Bible Church. If there is no Colonial Bible Church, uh, you know, I'm moving to Florida or something. <laughs> Seriously, uh, that should be our set of mind. Uh, because we have the great fellowship with each other that Christ, that Christ one day had compassion on you and me. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you, you know our our minds and our hearts. I ask you, Lord, that if there's someone like the widow, broken and without hope, please have compassion on them. If it's someone, Lord, that on the outside looks great and it looks good, but in the inside is broken too, please have compassion on them too. Please, May your Holy Spirit transform us every day more to the image of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.